Welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, helping aspiring investors get to grips with the world of finance and investing. On today's programme, we talk to our resident chartered financial planner, Felix Milton, about individual savings accounts or ISAs, and look at the tantalising prospect of becoming an ISA millionaire from investing over the long term. Hello, I'm Simon Longfellow. And I'm Marcus De Silva. And welcome along to this week's pod. Well, on today's show, who wants to be a millionaire? <laughs> now, I'm not doing any impressions. Oh, come and on. we're not interviewing Tarrant or indeed Clarkson. We are talking to Felix Milton about how, how to become an ISA millionaire from investing slowly, carefully and sensibly uh, over the long term. But before we get to that, let's catch up on what's been happening. Marcus, what stats have caught your BDI this week? <laughs> yeah, so I've just have been having a look at inflation. I think it's um, it's been in the news again because some investors are worrying a little bit about inflation. We saw some new uh, inflation reads here in the UK, and we saw that it's, it rose 1.5% in April. That's up from 0.7% in March. So it has this kind of optical appearance of picking up pace, really. Now, this is still under the, the central bank, the Bank of England's 2% target. But investors are, are worrying about these inflationary uh, pressures. You know, there, there, there's definitely a lot of reasons for why inflation could rise. There's a lot of government borrowing and spending. Uh, there's a lot of consumers with 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 money to to spend as they're coming out of uh, lockdown because they've been saving a lot. So there's, you know, there's various reasons, a lot of money chasing too few goods. It's that kind of environment for inflation. And the broad view is that it will be transitory and it, and it should drop down as the sort of economic machine gets going a little bit. But how high it may go, you know, that's the kind of worry. I mean, Richard Hunter at Interactive Investor thinks it will go up to about 2.5% by the end of the year before settling at around the 2% target, which I don't think is, 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 is too insane levels of inflation there. But, of course, it leads to the natural question, how can I protect my portfolio a little bit against inflation? Just, so I just thought I'd remind you of those kind of traditional inflation hedges. Remember, these aren't perfect. It's just kind of what we, what we know from history as to, as to why those prices can sort of rise, um, hopefully ahead of inflation. So the first would be commodities is one, and we've certainly seen their prices rising. There's a lot of demand for raw materials, which is effectively what these, these things are, given that the global economy is recovering and we sort of need more stuff to build more stuff, right? Um, and also there's a view that we could be at the beginning of a big commodity super cycle, a, a, a big period of strong demand for commodities. We've spoken about that before in the pod, so go and check that out if you want to learn more. We've also got a blog post that I've recently written on that, so there's lots of detail on that one. Gold is also another traditional hedge uh, against inflation, and it's shown to do this quite well um, historically. Um, there are some, some views that cryptos have a, have a lot of similarities to gold in this sense. I mean, how well it could could um, uh, help you hedge against inflation. don't know because we obviously don't have a lot of history um, behind that. There's a lot of volatility in the crypto markets as well. So I think that's that's just something you really got to be aware of. I mean, Bitcoin this year has gone from $29,000 a coin at the beginning of January all the way up to $62,000 
$63,000, just over that, um, about a month ago, and now it's back down below 40000 So you must proceed with caution there. The recent concerns around crypto have been to do with the regulatory risks of the Chinese central bank has said it, it, you know, its companies shouldn't be accepting this. Also, Elon Musk came out and, and has now reversed his plans for Tesla to accept crypto. So, you know, there's some concerns rising there. We're actually going to do a pod with Laith Khalif uh, from AJ Bell on exactly this. So watch this space for that because we're going to look at it in a lot more detail there. Um, but anyway, so gold is, is, a, is, another, is another traditional one. Um, the other one is, is, is um, um, inflation-linked government bonds in the UK gilts is what they're called here and that's just where those interest payments that you get on bonds those coupon payments that are paid semi-annually are linked to this 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 uh to to um rpi the retail prices index which is a measure of inflation so that can be quite good and actually what interact investor there was saying was they'd actually pointed to an example um, of a trust that has good exposure to this, and that's the Capital Gearing Trust. Um, and they were saying, you know, with these index-linked bonds, they've got exposure of around 30%, if you know, as a possible way of gaining exposure to those. So that's uh, that's the third idea. And I think, you know, it's worth mentioning just very broadly, company shares tend to be better in an inflationary environment than, than other assets. Because if you think about a company, you know, if its prices start going up, its wages start going up, or you know, it's you know the raw materials it's using to make products start going up. It can pass those prices on, those price rises on to its consumers relatively easily. So that's why, and the share prices should reflect that as well. So that's why they are over the long term seen as as sort of a better asset to be in an inflationary environment. So I just thought I'd offer all those reminders, really. Simon, what have you been looking at? I came across a piece about pensions issued by our good friends at AJ Bell. They specialise in personal uh, pensions. So seemingly the government has announced that as part of a drive for simplicity, the Department for Work and Pensions, the DWP, has unveiled proposals to simplify the retirement information that automatic enrolment savers get each year. So just as a reminder, auto-enrolment, it's a relatively new invention. It basically forces employers to provide employees with a pretty basic pension. Uh, um, I would very much share the view of uh, Tom Selby from AJ Bell that simpler statements are, you know, de facto a good thing. Anything that can help boost uh, engagement from pensioned holders has to be a good thing. But I have to say, I think I'm, I'm getting my soapbox here, but I think it's only about 10% of the problem because, um, and I'll tell you for why, during the week I happened to be looking at the website of Pension B. Uh, if you don't know Pension B, they've done a very creditable job of presenting pensions simply encouraging people to uh, you know transfer pensions consolidate pensions find pensions start a new pension you know they're um, really going for uh, going for gold on that but um, it's only when you dig deeper that you remember really just how complicated it is so I was looking at the drawdown options they offer on their website so drawdown is that thing you do when you want to access the money in your pension pot basically and through no fault of pension B at all the number of words they have to use just to describe all the options available it just makes you want to sit down in a darkened room with a damp towel basically um, it is so complicated and I think Tom Tom hit the nail on the head here he, he said uh, this week 
While the government is understandably focusing on the information providers send out to members, it should also acknowledge the role it has played in creating a mind-bending complexity in the pension system. There are countless examples of unwelcome and unnecessarily complicated rules created by the government. Well, quite. It is mind-bogglingly complicated. Okay, well, in a moment, we are not going to phone a friend or ask the audience. We're going to ask our regular guest financial planner, Felix Milton, about ISA millionaires and how to be one. But first, let's find out what's been happening in the news, in the markets. More jitters this week, Marcus? Yeah, well, so that kind of crypto volatility is definitely... um led to some sort of yeah broader um, jitteriness really in in markets which i think is quite an interesting to see that price action sort of leaching into to mainstream assets so there were falls in european and, and us stock markets there although it's quite a margin i mean we're talking it's quite the margin i think here here though broadly the talk at the moment is whether and when central banks might start reducing their monetary support their quantitative easing programs so we know you know, in places like the US, it's, it's $120 billion worth of bonds that they're purchasing in order to inject liquidity into the market. So this reduction in their programs is known as tapering. And the last time we had big quantitative easing programs, and, and that was tapered back in, I think it was 2012, we saw some big panicking in the markets um, there. Because, you know, what investors are worrying about is you've given the market so much liquidity, you've kind of given the, the, it, um, they've got used to this steroidal kind of boost. What happens when you remove it? Prices can start to deflate a little bit there. And, um, you know, what's added to that, we saw some Fed meeting minutes, the Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank there from last month showing that some officials were quite, you know, not, not, no, not quite. Some were starting to go, OK, you know, is the level of monetary support appropriate, given that the economy is recovering quite strongly? And we're also seeing this transitory, well, hopefully transitory inflation coming through. Um but since that meeting, actually, you know, there's a bit of a lag with those, 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 re- the release of the meetings of, of those kind of um, uh, central bank meetings. But since then, you know, jobs growth hasn't been so great. So they may have cooled slightly on that. I think the prevailing view view is, is that tapering will probably start in 2022 and it, and it probably will lead to, to some volatility in the markets. But for the moment that it will, you know, I think central banks will continue on their course. Um, and, you know, what the market is treading then carefully is this kind of stronger economic growth is coming through. That's a good thing. But investors are worrying about the emergence of, of too much inflation, which which could be bad. As I said, a lot of people think this is transitory, but how transitory is is still up up for, um, you know, discussion, really. It could be a few months, it could be a couple of years. And, and that's going to make investors jittery. It, it could create some more volatility in markets in the near term, as we've already seen some rallying from lows and, you know, markets are looking reasonable, if, if not in some places overpriced. So so, so there's that as a, as a potential. You'd be aware of the volatility, but, you know, buy the dips type thing. I mean, I, I think that's where the opportunities can arise as well from volatility when you can see the broader economy is, is sort of recovering and moving in the right direction. Um, so, you know, something to think about. Um, so stocks have still really moved higher towards the end of the week. 
Um, and we're still seeing good profits coming through, really. So that recovery, it, it's still in, in process. All in all, the S&P 500 is up 41 points to 4,115. The FTSE 100 is down 13 points to 6,954. The stock 600 is up 1.5 points to 438. And the Nikkei 225 is up 373 points to 28,098. Simon, what have you got in companies? Uh, I've got food, drink and um, aeroplanes this week. So let's start with food. Uh, processed foods manufacturer Premier Foods is likely to reinstate its dividend to shareholders. So that's the income it pays away from profits for the first time in how many years do you think? Five. Five. Okay, 13 years. Yeah, right. yeah quite a long time. So sales of brand favourites like Oxo, Bisto Gravy, they've surged after what it called a series of emotionally engaging advertising campaigns for its top products. So profits for the year to the beginning of April were up nearly 130%. Sales of other brands in the portfolio also soared, including Sherwood's and Mr. Kipling Cakes hit a record £150 million in sales for the first time. As a consequence, the firm is set to expand and to continue to launch new products home and abroad. Uh, look forward to some more uh, advertising, I'm sure. The final dividend is proposed at one pence per share. Moving to pubs, the chief executive of Mitchells and Butlers, the UK's largest listed pub group, has warned that contradictory messaging could harm the road to recovery for Britain's embattled pub sector. This chap, Phil Urban, said that despite two days of good trade following the pub's reopening on the 17th of May, he was nervous that speculation about variants of COVID may affect demand. Mitchells and Butlers run 1,700 pubs across the UK, including brands such as Toby, Toby Carvery, Nicholson's and All Bar One. The group reported a loss of £200 million for the six months to April, during half of which time all of its pubs were closed. Rival chain Marston's, which operates 1,500 venues, also announced pre-tax losses of £106 million in the same period. And finally, aeroplanes. Uh, Qantas has announced new cost-cutting measures to help it deal with the impact of the pandemic. The Australian carrier said it would report an annual loss before tax of more than £1.1 billion. It did add that its debt pile had peaked and was likely to fall as domestic travel got back on track to pre-pandemic levels, but its latest cost-cutting plans include a two-year wage freeze for employees, reducing travel agents' commissions for international flights, and offering voluntary redundancies to cabin crew in its international business. Uh, separately, on Wednesday of this week, the parent company of rival Singapore Airlines revealed a record annual loss of $3.2 billion. That's worse than the average loss forecast by eight analysts, according to news agency Reuters. Okay, well, that's the news. Let's turn now to this week's interview. Ever wanted to invest with the goal of becoming a millionaire? Well, we talked to our regular guest, Chartered Financial Planner, Felix Milton, to find out more. So it wasn't that long ago that Hargreaves Lansdowne, the number one investment platform in the UK, mentioned that it had 579 
ISA millionaires on its books. That's out of 1.6 million customers. Now, this would be an exciting level of wealth, but that wasn't that many compared to the 1.6 million. So we wanted to have a look at how difficult this would be to achieve moving forward, and if it's achievable, how you might set about planning and investing for it. As such, I've got with me back on the pod our man with the plans, Chartered Financial Planner Felix Milton from Philip J. Milton & Co. Felix, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. Good to be here. So, Felix, let's start with a reminder. Can you tell me a little bit about the features of a Stocks and Shares ISA briefly? Yes. So a Stocks and Shares ISA is a very simple form of ISA. You can invest £20,000 in any one tax year, and that can be put into broadly any listed stocks and shares um, that you can grow and get tax-free gains and tax-free income. So very simple, a tax-free wrapper for you to invest in. I mean, when you say, so any listed stocks and shares, it's quite a wide variety of investments. What about cryptos? So you could probably get exposure to crypto if you bought, there are a few ETFs out there now, which are exchange traded funds. So they have underlying exposure to crypto. Um, but as far as I am aware, at the moment, you cannot directly buy cryptos within an ISA, um, stocks and shares ISA. There is the innovative finance ISA as well that does exist. Um, but again, I don't believe they allow crypto yet. That's not to say they will disallow it in the future. Right. OK, so sort of pooled investment might be the way to get into that if you were yes, if you were looking yeah. at some of those splashy headlines recently and wondering about cryptos. OK, fine. So now let's get on to the number. I mean, I said, as I said, you know, 579 isn't massive relative to the number of customers on Hargreaves, but presumably it gets a little bit easier from here on out. Well, yes. I mean, there's a, a trick really that we could look at for getting more ISA millionaires, and that's allowing an inflation to uh, play its part, because obviously as inflation occurs, and particularly at the moment, it's ticking up in the US particularly, um, a million becomes a smaller number comparably. So if you have a million pounds today, it's a million pounds in 20 years time isn't going to be worth the same and have the same buying power as that money does today. But I'm sure it still will be a significant amount of money nonetheless. Yeah, I'm sure you're absolutely right. Okay, fine. So we then, Felix, we had a look at a few different rates of return that you require each year if you invested that maximum £20,000. And how long did it, you know, what was the range of time that it took generally at, at varying rates in order to be able to become an ISA millionaire? So we did a, a quick sort of hash together of a spreadsheet allowing for £20,000 invested on, say, the 6th of April, so the start of a new tax year. And then on the 6th of April, each year thereafter, you'd invest another £20,000 and just to see what happened and how much you'd accrue. So at an 8% annual return, so your 20000 grows 8%, and then you add 20000 and then that collective grows 8% and so on, you'd get uh, to a million pounds in just under 20 years, actually. Um, and then right at the other end of the spectrum, if you were getting just a 3% return each year, it would take you nearly 30 years to get a million pounds. So there are quite a big uh, timescale difference between those varying rates of return. And as you've only got 5% per annum in it, that 5% actually is quite a big amount when you allow for the, the time frame. Right, okay, okay. And so you've got, so an 8% portfolio, to, to achieve 8% per year, this is something that is possible. 
it's definitely something that's possible. I mean, if you look at the stock market returns, say, over the past year, depending on when you invested, if you invested in the lows of the pandemic uh, and have held it through to, say, this year, you, you may, some will even be up sort of at least 50%, possibly even more. So when you consider that's a big portion of your sort of annualized return, you've got to, you could do that quite easily. But again, it's not about sort of when you're going to time the market, because you're never going to be able to time the market accurately. You'll never catch the bottom, you'll never catch the top. But what it's about is consistent investing and leaving it to accumulate. That's where you build the wealth. Um, so but 8% certainly isn't unrealistic over a long time frame. Okay. And then let's look at the let's look at those extremes then. So if we had an 8% portfolio and a 3%, is the risk that's required to achieve those rates of return very different between those portfolios? So the, the level of risk typically would be would be a bit different. So for an 8% return per annum, that's quite high in itself. But what you'd be, be looking at to do that is broadly having more shares typically um, than bonds and say property exposure. However, that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. That's just a textbook where you'd really get that return, but a diversified portfolio, broadly invested in lots of things that can go up and down, that's where you'd get that return. And then at the other end of the spectrum for the 3%, you'd be looking at things that are say more steady in their growth. So you'd be looking at things like government bonds because they have a fixed uh, term and a known payout. So again, they're not going to fluctuate as much, um, but it is a way of getting a little bit of return on your money. But as I said, it will take a lot longer to get to that million pound mark uh, by investing in those lower risk assets. Okay, how do you how do you reckon? I mean, if you're if you're an investor thinking about the types of portfolio you want, you know, the eight percent one is quite risky. The three percent one is a, is a lot more is a lot less risk involved in it. How can you find out yourself how risk averse you are? Is there is there a way of of, of finding that out? So there, there are several sort of questionnaires you could possibly do online. I mean, any financial advisory firm will have to risk rate you before you invest. So we, we have a risk assessment questionnaire that we just ask clients a, a core set of questions to find out a bit more about what their experience is, what they believe, how comfortable they'd be in certain situations. And then from that, we build a picture of how risk uh, averse or risk seeking they are as a, an individual. Now, that won't mean that they're the same for, for every single scenario because everyone has a different experience. Um, but generally, you need to think about what you would do in a situation if you saw your money halve overnight. How would you react? Now, I appreciate that's very hypothetical, but I think that's a very good way of thinking about how much risk you'd like to take. And if you can honestly hand on heart say, look, overnight of my money halved, I wouldn't react negatively in terms of encashing and going, it's safe now and would leave it, maybe you can take a bit more risk. But if you know you're the type of person to say, actually, I couldn't cope with that, that would be absolutely catastrophic, I didn't cash right away, then taking a, a high level of risk where that could happen uh, wouldn't really be suitable. So it's about finding what you're comfortable with uh, and knowing, again, that the long term average is that markets do go up. So you need to always remember that with investing is that over the long term, markets will go up. And I can't see anything that's going to mean that is isn't the case going forward. Can you change how risk averse you are? Absolutely. I mean, typically or traditionally, what we saw were, were lifestyling in pension funds. And what that means is as people started out their career, they had a greater exposure to, say, stocks and shares. 
um, that would go up and down. And then as they approach retirement, the, the fund would automatically move them into government bonds, which fluctuate a lot less, so they have certainty of what they can use to buy an annuity, which is an income for life in retirement. So that was traditionally how it is. As people get older, they get more risk averse and want more certainty with their money. Um, so you can change throughout, and people do change, particularly as they get older and more experienced. Okay, brilliant. And then let's let's have a look, go back into dive into the portfolios there. Um, how would you approach asset allocation? Because I think the two key things that you're generally thinking about when you're investing is how risk averse you are, and then how much time you might have. And that kind of then dictates to a large extent your, you know, your asset allocation mix. So with, with all of these timeframes, you've got quite a lot of time on, on your hands. So does, does that dictate the asset allocation mix or, or, or there are, are there other things you should be thinking about? So time certainly will help. And what's important to consider is that you also don't know the future. So whilst you may think when you're starting out that you can invest and leave it without touching it, you know, there's always those unplanned expenditures that arise or, or unforeseen circumstances, which means you need to encash some of the money. So that, again, is something to, to bear in mind. The future is unknown. So planning for an element of unknown is prudent and is important when considering asset allocation. Um, but for those that have got a longer time frame, they could perhaps take a more equity heavy approach. Uh, with regard to their funds, as opposed to someone who has a shorter time frame and knows roughly when and what they may need the money for. So if you're buying a house, you know that at maybe 10 years, you probably can't take as much risk as someone who knows that they're going to lock the money away and leave it 30. Um, because again, you, you've got a set defined timescale for when you may need to access the money. So that would feed into how you approach the asset allocation and what sort of things you choose to invest in. Okay, so what would you say then for an 8% a year portfolio, what would you say, what kind of percentage of shares do you reckon you would need for that kind of return? So, I mean, for that kind of return, really, you'd be looking at, say, an 80% shares and growth orientated um, portfolio, maybe 20% you'd have some more defensive assets. So that's government bonds, alternatives, property, commodities. Um, so that's, that's really what the sort of academics would say, well, what's very important with asset allocation is that you review it regularly. But by regularly, I don't mean every day, I mean, perhaps once a year, um, and also have a globally diversified investment portfolio. So that may mean that all your stocks, yes, they all say all listed on the London Stock Exchange, that's fine. But as long as you're getting global exposure, so you could invest in, say, uh, a Japanese smaller company's investment trust, if you wish, um, quoted on the London Stock Exchange, but getting you that direct exposure to Japan. Um, so, again, making sure you're globally diversified in your outlook, uh, again, and, and making sure that you spread your eggs around, um, but all sort of in a similar sort of growth uh, perspective should should pay you sort of dividends and get good returns in the future. Yes, because, of course, 80% in shares doesn't mean in, in one particular market. You've got to be prudent about managing your risks elsewhere, and diversification is one of those key things. Okay, so if, if 80% was the 8% portfolio then, at 3% per annum, what kind of risk do you reckon you need to be taking then? So 3%, I'd, I'd say that'd be a pretty low risk approach. Um, so you, you'd probably flip, flip the equation on its head. Um, so you'd maybe have, say, 80% defensive, 20% sort of equities and stocks and shares based. Again, but with the defensive assets, you again look at a, a global approach. Um, so global government bond exposure, global property exposure, uh, and, and things like that. So Again, that's what really I'd say for the lower end of the risk spectrum. And then you reckon all of, I mean, I mean, no matter what portfolio you're going for here, 
you can do it with funds. Do you need to be investing in individual shares in order to generate these returns? Or do you reckon you can still hit 8% with a, with a fund, with a pooled fund? Oh, you certainly could do that with a pooled fund. Um, and, and pooled funds are a great, great way to get exposure to things that you don't have the expertise on or things that you say would like to invest in, um, but can't. So uh, for example, private equity, that's one area that you're not going to be investing in, in the next startup, but a private equity firm that's quoted may be able to, and not so that's suitable, but to get those sort of very high levels of return that could maybe only be one or 2% of the overall growth that one year. But if you have a, a say a private equity firm that your investment doubles in it, that could really help boost your returns. Um, and that's why you can do it with funds rather than individual stocks. But individual stocks, again, you've really got to know what you're doing um, and picking the right things and analyzing the market and, and working out what to do. So unless you've got lots of time and, and experience and know why you're picking the stocks and be prepared to change and realize you may be wrong, um, they're really sticking to funds that are going to get you that exposure um, is the best way forward. Yeah, I mean, do you think individual stocks are for retail investors? So I think some there are some circumstances where individual stocks can be appropriate for retail investors. Um, so people can definitely understand them and learn about individual stocks, uh, particularly say if you have an expertise in an area, you may know which companies to, to look at and may know a bit more about why that sort of product will sort of pay dividends in the future. That's not to say that always happens. So it's very important to, to realize that you may be biased towards a certain industry. Um, a key example of this is say employer share sale schemes. So we often get clients that have a huge exposure to their company stock because they've accrued them over the years and how could their employer fail? They work for them. Um, but it, that's a, a very big risk in itself. Um, but generally I'd say most consumers, if they really want just simple market exposure, they could literally buy a tracker fund, which buys everything. It's non-discriminatory, but it buys absolutely everything. And that will get them exposure to the market uh, with them not really having to worry about anything else. Okay, let's, let's, in terms of how many investments, I mean, I think this is probably somewhere where retail investors go wrong. How many funds is the right amount of funds? When does it become, to coin Warren Buffett's expression, diversification? So it's a very interesting uh, question, that, uh, particularly with Warren Buffett as well, with what, what he said, because, I mean, historically, 20 stocks is where you remove the individual stock risk. And then on top of that, uh, anything else is it could be seen as over uh, diversification. But what you also need to remember is that there has also been research, uh, particularly with Vanguard, uh, the advent of Vanguard, in that buying every stock, so that could be 1,000 stocks in theory, um, will actually get you just as good returns over the long run as picking a few stocks. Um, so it, it, how many stocks is, is a very hard question, particularly with funds. If you're choosing lots of funds, that's fine. But what you want to do is make sure that you're not picking, say, several of the, the best funds that all actually have the same underlying exposure to their top five companies. So a couple of investment trusts spring to mind in particular, where they have, say, Tesla within their top five holdings and Apple and Microsoft as well. And you're not really getting that diversification. You're just paying sort of a, a, another set of fees for the same exposure. So making sure that you've got different exposure with those funds and no crossover, that's very important. So, so again, sort of that 20, 20 individual stock mark um, or with, with funds, it's honestly dependent on how much you've got to invest and how far you're spreading your, your money around and what your time scale is as well. 
Oh, interesting. So you'd actually worry about doubling, tripling maybe on big positions that are very popular rather than worrying about being overly diversified with too many funds. Exactly. And, and we're, I mean, our investment philosophy, we're firm believers of spreading your eggs around because I said, if you get that one company, all it takes is one share to double, for example, and that could be providing one or 2% of the overall growth for that year, which is great. Um, so diversification, particularly in funds and investment trusts, where you, if you're buying a smaller investment trust, for example, you may not be able to buy as much as you want because it's not got that liquidity there behind the market. Um, so you buy as much as you can and then you go, ah, I need something else because I've got this extra cash that I don't want to hold. Um, and, and so you buy something else. So it, it's very uh, independent of scenario. But as I said, if you want just the exposure, you could just do a, say, track a, a fund approach and buy everything. I mean, I think the other thing that Warren Buffett said was it's protection against ignorance. And I think for most of us, myself included, is when you're competing against professional investors, then I think there probably will be an element of ignorance against what they know and the resources they have and the access they have to management as well. So I don't, yeah, I don't know whether that applies to the retail market. I think I think you do want to be quite diversified, as you say. You do. And again, you're, it's it's not, I say, a competition against the, the institutional investors. They do get it wrong as well, and they get it wrong a lot. Um, but, but again, you've got to be prepared to realise that your choices may be wrong and you may pick things that actually fail um that as long as you're willing to accept that uh then hopefully you can become a better investor as, as you learn how to to buy and sell shares and of course there could be things you're not even doing wrong and it's just to do with that company and it's poorly managed its finances or it's done things that, that couldn't be seen before and um you know that's just the way it works it's um exactly yeah tough game okay i also wanted to ask you about you know this is obviously i mean we said you know the minimum amount eight percent was about 20 years we thought um all the way up to 30 years i mean that's quite a long journey what do you think are those key mistakes that investors make in that that journey that can really trip up their returns so the key mistake is one thinking it is a sprint and not a marathon so checking your portfolio and changing your portfolio too frequently, that's a very big mistake. And there's lots of research on this about people who change their investments regularly and how good their returns are over the long run versus if they simply leave them and check them once a year. Um, and in particular, there, there was a study actually that you can read, Richard Thaler was the Nobel Prize winning behavioral economist, uh, economist sorry. Um, and he, he, they did a study in Israel where they released pension fund values once a year as opposed to every quarter. And they actually found that people were less likely to change their funds and actually had better returns over a longer time frame than those that got their statements every quarter. So it's very, very interesting. So checking and, and changing, say, once a year is absolutely fine. But don't check every day. Don't check every month because day trading and trading very regularly is, is effectively gambling. Okay, good tip there. All right. So what would then on the flip side be your top tip for wealth generation? So my top tip would be save small and regularly. So if you can simply put some money away once a month, that's probably absolutely fine. And hopefully that will build up without you necessarily realizing that such a big sum has left your bank account. I mean, with the figures we looked at earlier, saving £20,000 each year is a lot of money for most people. 
um, because you have to obviously save that out of your net uh, earnings, so as after-tax earnings. So if you can save in, say, you've got share save schemes, you can save out of your gross earnings. I know I said that uh, about them earlier, but if you're saving just to build up, that's a great way of saving money. Um, again, pensions as well, because you're getting that extra tax boost. So taking advantage of all the things available to you and saving a small amount, but regularly, that's likely to be best over the long run. Felix Nelson, thanks very much. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Felix, for that. Marcus, just listening back to your interview, uh, what did you what did you take away from it? What were your memories of it? I think I think the key takeaway here is is like okay, I understand been having to have a, enough spare cash to put twenty thousand pounds away every single year is quite it's quite hard. It's a huge for most sum, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's a big sum, right? Okay, and that but that's not really the point. I think the big point here is that you know. After, if you got that eight percent level of growth in your portfolio, after twenty years, you would have saved four hundred thousand pounds, just in cash. Just in cash, that's yeah. the twenty thousand pounds each year. Yeah, but you would have a million pounds in value, and eight percent is achievable, as Felix was saying, by funds, by diversified funds, and that's the point here. We often go on about investing is a slow process. We think people should do it sensibly to keep hold of those gains. And it's a long-term thing. It's a get-rich-slow scheme. And I think, you know, 8%, that is very achievable. You know, you'll have to dial up the risk a little bit on equities, but you can still do it during, with you know, using funds, which diversify away all those unnecessary risks. By the way, we've got a YouTube show on that. Um, But it shows you how extraordinary the the growth in your wealth could be. You know, £400,000 turned into a million pounds. You know, that's a massive, massive difference to your future. Well, and it's the power of compounding, isn't it, essentially, because that 8% on year one can be a little bit less in year two because you, it's, it's 8% of a little bit more money. Um, yeah. So the, the power of, uh, of compounding over the, over the long term is really what's driving a lot of that, a lot of, that return, really. Of course. So, yeah, I mean, if you start with £100, you get 8%, and you have £108 after a year, right? It's then 8% on that 108 and it's that increasing number all the time. That, that is what makes it so powerful. It's why so many people, you know, Einstein said compounding was like the whatever law. You know, <laughs> um, uh, it, it's, it's a very, very powerful f- force, but it is a long-term game. So to all of our younger listeners out there, it may not seem like you're saving a lot right now, but it's that starting early that makes such a difference. And that's what Felix was talking about. Yeah, that's what, that's what I was thinking as, as you were talking there. It's, you know, you, you think 20, 25 years might be a long time, but if you start early enough, actually, you know, if you were a millionaire by the age of 45, you said that to most 20, 20 year olds to say, yeah, I'd love to be a millionaire by the age of 45. Um, but as you say, so it, is a, it is a lot of money. I suppose the other thing I was thinking is, you know, to split that up into the monthly or weekly amounts that it you know 20,000 pounds is a big number but split into smaller amounts you know it's it's more manageable i suppose well so we actually spoke about that with felix as well and it's 700 pounds a month right so 700 pounds i mean maybe as a couple you might be able to do that as well or you know if you you know if you've got a better paid job but you know it doesn't you don't have to be a millionaire right i mean if that number was 500,000 it would still make a big difference it was 100,000 it would make a big big difference just start just get going put more in as you can try to get up to that maximum if it's possible and you know but don't take too many unnecessary risks as well really if you want to because it's not just making the wealth it's keeping hold of it as well um, and I think that's what that's what the diversification in funds 
you know, gives you. Sage words. Okay. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to Felix for joining us. Join us again next week when we talk about some of the new investment launches we've been seeing over the last few weeks. Until then, it's goodbye from us. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you.